All right, you guys want to have a Bible study? Amen. All right, let's grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 22. Chapter 22. Well, we're getting near to the end. Next week we will finish our nine-month, ten-month journey in the book of Revelation. Now, immediately after this book, we're going to have a few sessions together that I'm going to call, So Now What? After everything that we have learned in the book of Revelation, I think that it is important that we take a step back as a church and ask ourselves, all right, what do we do here and now in light of all that we have learned? Because it it would be easy just to go home, sit on the couch and say, that's it, Lord, I'm just going to watch cable television until you come back. It's a goner, you know, but that's exactly what the Lord wouldn't want us to do. We need to be actively involved. And the Bible is clear. This isn't me saying this. This is the Bible saying this, that we are to live in a certain way in the last days. And then we'll ramp up for our next one uh, after that. And so, a lot coming your way. But for this morning, today I want to take you again to the New Jerusalem. I want to bring you into the most intimate area of the New Jerusalem that we will inhabit for all eternity. As we have seen throughout the New Testament, what started out simply being introduced as a kingdom, then being shown to us as a city, now we're getting to the most intimate part of it, a garden within that city. And in each and every step, we have gotten one step closer to our Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, here we will read these wonderful words that really are the cornerstone of these five verses. We shall see His face. That's really what we are looking forward to. You know, when I ask people to define for me what is eternal life, They simply reduce it to the existing forever. And that's true in a sense. But doing what? How will we be existing? What will we be doing? What will we occupy our time with? Jesus tells us that eternal life in John 17 is to know God. And because He is infinite in the manner in which He is, it's going to take us an eternity to do so. So let us begin by looking at verse 1 of chapter 22. And he showed me, this is the angel, to John, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light, or sun, for the Lord God gives them light, 
and they shall reign forever and ever and ever. You know, every time we go to our favorite hotel in Door County, Wisconsin, it's, as I check us in, I come back out, and I always pass one of those brochure stands that almost every hotel has. Maybe you remember seeing them. And they have little brochures of all the various attractions that you can take part in and look and experience and discover. And you kind of rifle through it and you pick out ones that you may be interested in and you collect them. Oh, hey, these will be a good idea. And it's usually by the end of the trip you didn't hit any of those places. You end up throwing those things out anyway. But I always wondered as I walked by there if one said heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth, what would be the, you know, the bullet points describing this place? And would it intrigue me enough to provoke me to go and discover what it is truly all about? In these five verses, I find six things that would be on that bulletin, that brochure. Number one, heaven is a place of pure satisfaction. Number one, it's a place of pure satisfaction. Number two, it's a place of all sufficiency. All sufficiency. Number three, a place of no more curse. Of no more curse. Number four, a place of service. Number five, a place of restoration. And number six, a place of joy. We're going to discover now in Revelation chapter 22 that all that we lost at the beginning in Genesis is now going to be restored unto us, including we ourselves restored unto Christ. You know, again, I use this illustration all the time, but I think it is fitting to remind us of what it took God to bring us back from the fall. You know, if we look at our Bibles just very simply, this page, everything was created, everything is good, everything is perfect, Everything is exactly the way God wanted it to be. Then we get to this page, and everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. Then we get to the last page, and everything is back to where it should be. And in between is all that God needed to do to make that happen. You've now studied the Bible in 15 seconds. This is what it's all about. And now we are finding the restoration of all things. And the beginning of that restoration and that fulfillment is found in the first verse of chapter 21. Look there with me. And he showed me a pure river of life. Water throughout the Bible has always been a symbol of a life source a symbol of a life source, regardless if it has been in the wilderness or if it's been in the cities. Cities were absolutely dependent on its water source. There needed to be a water source to allow the city uh, inhabitants to thrive. And so from the very beginning, what is notated to us through this is that it is life that is found here in this new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. 
Now, in the Old Testament, when you look at the wanderings of the various uh, uh, people groups, you will notice that the pathways that they took between cities always included stopovers at various wells because that's where they needed to once again find water to continue on in their journey. Water was so important to that society, obviously. Without it, they would die. So the very first thing that we are given about this new heavens, the new earth, in this restored garden is that it is continuously fed by a river of water of life. Notice with me that it proceeds from the throne of God itself. God is the life giver. And the Lamb, of course, speaking of Jesus, of course, our source of life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is the life that sustains us for all eternity. Notice with me that it is pure. It is holy. It is righteous. It is without sin, this life. And of course, it is moving, showing that it is a source of living water. Meaning that it isn't brackish in nature, nature, excuse me. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah indicted the people, in fact, God did through the, people, through the prophet Jeremiah, of two evils that they had committed. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, should be on the screen behind me. It says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The Jewish people forsook God, and they went after the various idols of the various nations around Israel. And he likened it to a very poor exchange. A river flowing was a river that was fresh, that was healthy, and was consumable. And he says, you've traded me for something that cannot sustain life, that cannot uh, keep you from perishing. You have hewn out for yourself cisterns. And what cisterns were, were big underground caverns that water was stored in. Now, there were two problems with this water. Number one, after it was collected, it would stagnate very quickly because of the heat, etc. Often it wasn't kept cool enough, and various, you know, bacterias and uh, uh, other microbes would develop, causing people to be sick if they drank it. Have you ever seen standing water? You know, one of the jobs that I had that God taught me humility through, one of the many, is I used to clean pools, okay? I used to clean pools here in Illinois, so it was a seasonal job, okay? And some of the people just didn't get the concept that you had to put new water in occasionally, okay? I even cleaned pools at one of the large hotels in this area. 
And one day I discovered that the pool needed extra cleaning because there was a big party in the pool area the night before. Some guys from a band called Motley Crue had totally trashed the pool the night before. And guess whose job it was to clean it up, okay? But water can go bad very quickly. In fact, standing water after standing for only a month can breed Legionnaire's disease. And so the water that was kept in these cisterns had to be used immediately or it was no good. Worse yet, if the water was collected in these cisterns and it then leaked out because the cistern had cracks in it, it was, again, no good to the individual. God says, whatever you have traded me for is no good. It's not going to sustain you. Whatever God it is that you bow down to, what is, whatever material possession you idolize, whatever relationship you put before me, it's no good. And it will not produce the life that only I can produce for you. This is why the psalmist said in Psalm 36.9, he said, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Of course, Jesus coming to the woman next to the well, he said to her in John 4.10-15, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with for the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? And you're great, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw again. This is the water that God points us to. As Tom Constable wrote, Dr. Tom Constable, he says the point of this passage is to teach that the eternal state of God's people will live at the source of the life-giving stream with the very presence of God himself in front of us. That's how it all begins. This living water that Jesus offered is now available to us openly and freely to any in the New Jerusalem that would drink of it. Notice with me here in chapter, uh, verse 2. And in the middle of its street, this is the main thoroughfare, on either side of the river was the tree of life. This, of course, is the tree that we first were introduced to in the book of Genesis. It once again now appears which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. That is a tricky grammatical sentence in Greek. And what it is basically saying is that this tree that gives us this fruit is constantly in season. There's never a portion of time in eternity that the fruit of this tree isn't in season. I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse than getting fruit outside of its proper season. All right? 
Getting a watermelon in January isn't a good thing to do, okay? Is it supposed to taste like that? But other people, other people realize and know that there are certain times of the year in certain areas of the country that certain fruit are the best. And they actually create their travel plans around that. Knowing that in Michigan, peaches and tomatoes are uh, available at a certain time, let's go. And uh, another area is cherries, another area is apples. We're getting to apple season, okay? You want to guarantee your entrance into heaven? Bring your pastor a Honeycrisp, okay? And I'll put in a good word for you. I love Honeycrisp apples, by the way. I mean, I am, I am convinced that that's going to be the fruit on the trees for all eternity, Okay? <laughs> You know, if you want to go with the kumquat, that's perfectly acceptable, but I'm going with the apple, all right? The tree will always be in, in season. Now, notice with me the contrast from the garden to here. After Adam and Eve sinned, God did not want them to remain in the status of their sin. So what did he do? What did he do to the entrance of the Garden of Eden? He blocked it with an angel. So they could not come back in to eat of the tree of life. But in eternity, in the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem will be freely available to access these trees at any time. This is the imagery John is painting for us. That full access has been regained again in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Notice with me that in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we read, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from it it parted and became four river heads. Notice the similarities. In Genesis 2:15 and 17, just a little bit further on in the chapter, then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And of course, then by chapter 3, we're testing that. In chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is after they have eaten the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent out them out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and he placed cherubim at the east gate of Eden with a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. It wasn't only for their protection, it wasn't only for their well-being, but it was also to protect the tree of life from Satan himself, which now we know that at this point in time Satan has been cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And as we know that these fruits never go out of season, that they're always ripe and ready to provide for us the life, the eternal life. So both the river and the tree and the fruit all speak of life. 
But notice here with me that John also mentions the leaves of the trees. And the leaves of the trees, in the end of verse 2, were there for the healing of the nations. Now, at first you may think that, wait a minute, what is the need of healing in the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem? I thought death and sickness was all eliminated by this time. Well, you're right, it is. What he is saying here, and the word that he uses for healing is the Greek word that we get the word therapy from. Therapia in the Greek is the word that is used there. It means that these leaves provide us a wholeness of wellness. Okay, a wholeness of wellness. It isn't just physical wellness. It's mental. It is spiritual wellness. All combined. It's the totality of wellness. You know, today we look at the body and the mind and the spirit individually. But I would strongly encourage you that if you're having difficulties, start with the things of the spirit first and see what God would do. Now, he does not guarantee healing to everyone. The Bible is clear on that. Paul the Apostle had affirmities. There are times that God will allow physical ailments to occur, to draw us nearer to him, to help us depend on him as he did Paul who had a condition with his eyes that helped him realize humility that was needed to carry on the ministry in which he had. But there's a lot of effects of the old life that can be resolved if we approach God and realize that God is looking for us wholly, as an entirety, not just portions of us. Maybe you struggle with anxiety and fear. God has answers for those things. If I may sum it up, it's faith. It's very hard for faith and anxiety and fear to occupy the same place. But that faith is only conditioned enough to handle those worries, fears, and anxieties when we truly know and understand God. Okay? Now, I am by no means in any way, you know, you know espousing a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. By no means am I saying that. But what I am saying is that not only does God give us satisfaction in Him, but He also is sufficient. I think we've moved too far away from Jesus, okay? It's, today, it's take pills, and if that doesn't work, then go to Jesus. Well, maybe we, take, we go to Jesus first, and then if that doesn't work, we look at other things. But sometimes we have to wait on the Lord for that healing. It doesn't come all, you know, all at one time. But I am assured that God is good. I am assured that all things are working together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that whatever I'm going through is not an accident. And therefore, I can be confident that God is working in the midst of it. So when we talk about healing and the healing of the nations, we're talking about a totality of healing. There's no more stain of sin and death upon this new world. It is completely free from those things. As one wrote, again, Dr. Tom Constable, brilliant man, he said, healing really means health giving. Since there will be no death in the new heaven and earth, leaves will uh, evidently promote well-being, the totality of our healing. 
And as Dr. Robert Mounts wrote, he said, the healing leaves indicate the complete absence of physical and spiritual want. The life to come will be a life of abundance and perfection. And that's what we have to look forward to. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because I want to bring us back to think about the original readers of this letter. 95 AD, the Roman Empire is now coming down hard upon Christians. The Jewish religious leaders are coming down hard upon Christians. They're losing their material possessions. They're losing their lives. They're losing their freedoms. It looks like Rome is unstoppable. Judaism, Israel, gone, okay? They have relocated to other cities around because of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., And many blamed the Christians for that because Jesus predicted that, didn't he? He told them this destruction was coming. It was very difficult to be a Christian at this time. So you can imagine how encouraging these words would be. We as Christians in America, we need to get ourselves out from under the system of pragmatism and thinking that the only comfort that we can ever really truly receive is in the here and now. It is possible to be comforted by those things that are still yet to come and that we can look forward to. We don't necessarily need immediate intervention to know that God is working. That is a lie that Satan will often challenges us with. You know, why are you suffering? Why are you going through hard times? God wouldn't really want that, would he? No, but he allowed it. And I can be confident that he's working in it. And I can also be confident that this is what waits for me. And I can also be confident Satan I knows what waits for you. And I can be confident of those things. And those things can give me hope in the moment to allow me to sustain and walk another day. In verse 3, if you just look there with me. And there shall be no more curse, no more sin, no more death. There will be no stain or remnant. There will be no um, uh, remaining of these things. It will be completely gone. Something that we today in our finite minds can't even comprehend. We are surrounded by death in each and every aspect of our existence. In fact, we're going into fall where we'll see the leaves change. I love fall, by the way. Do you guys like fall? I love it so much I named my daughter Autumn, okay? I named my daughter Autumn, not realizing that she was born in the spring and it, called, it caused her great difficulties going forward. Oh, were you born in October? No, nope, born in March. Oh, so you have those kind of parents, huh? Okay, I get it. We love fall, but let's be honest. It reminds us of death, doesn't it? And then the winter comes. And that I don't like so much anymore. I used to like it. I used to like it when I could enjoy the snow with a sled or skis or something like that. But with a car brush? No, no, not there. A shovel? Yeah, right. Who said this was a good idea? You know? But even in the midst of winter, what do I look forward to? Spring. Because life is coming again. Even though in the moment I'm going through the difficulties of winter 
and the restraints of winter, I know that what's coming next is spring. It's guaranteed to me. So if I can trust that by, uh, I can trust that spring will be here by July here in Chicago. Okay, I'm being funny, guys. Laugh at the jokes, please. These are the ones I have. And I'm very sensitive. I can be guaranteed that spring is coming. Why isn't it that I can be trusting of the fact that God's going to bring the new heavens and the new earth? If he can do this with our world, how much more can he do there? And that's what we need to look at. And we need to understand. And notice with me, he says here in verse 3, But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now, some might initially think, well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I have to serve God for all eternity? Yeah, you do. And you know what? You're going to love doing it. You're going to love doing it. You see, unfortunately today, and we've made Christianity all about us. We're the center of our Christian faith. What do I mean by that? It used to be that Christians understood that Jesus was to set at the preeminence. Paul wrote about this in Colossians. He was the one that was supposed to be on the throne of our hearts. He was the one that our lives were meant to revolve around. But today we have rebranded Christianity and now we've made it all about us and that God now revolves around us and we are the center of our lives. That is a very shallow, unhappy Christianity. And let me tell you something else. It is very discouraging to live in that type of Christianity. You're missing everything. When you realize that Christ, the only proper place for him in your heart is preeminence. It means the number one priority. He said it this way, very simply, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't see us in that list there, do you? In fact, he said just the opposite, that as a Christian, let us deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. The reason so many Christians aren't experiencing the joy of the Lord is because they got it backwards. Put Christ on the throne of your heart. Allow him to rule and to reign there. And then you'll understand what joy and peace is all about. You'll understand unconditional love, but as, as long as you continue to make it all about you, you are going to be a very happy, uh, unhappy person. Very unhappy person. Because Christ never came to solely serve us. Now, let me quantify that for a minute. We all know that Jesus says, I have, not yet, I have not come to be served, but to serve, okay? Why did he say that? Was he Lord? Yes, he was. Was he king? Yes, he was. Did he do that for his purpose or for ours? See, he was giving us an example in which to follow. He was showing how we should interact with one another. But... Is it wrong for him to desire the worship of a king and the worship of God? No. Is it wrong for him to ask us to serve him? No. Because I actually had a Christian tell me that. Well, I heard you talk about that Christ doesn't revolve around us, but didn't he come not to uh, be served, but to serve? Meaning he's come here to serve us. 
and it's all about us. Man, holy cow, you got it so wrong. You got it so wrong. And they were a very unhappy Christian, let me just say that. We are going to serve him. And in that service, it's going to be worship. It's going to be adoration. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to look upon him without falling to my knees. I don't know. You know, so many people say, I've got all these questions for God. Once I get to heaven, I've got all these questions for... I'm going to be speechless. I am going to be speechless. Because I cannot even fathom seeing him face to face as he has stated that we will. Notice this in verse 4. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. Verse 4 is a picture of intimacy like we haven't seen up until this point. It means it's uninhibited, uninhibited, pure fellowship, pure intimacy with God. That there's nothing holding us back from that deep desired intimacy that we so long for and he so desires with us. In the Bible, in ancient history, kings never allowed criminals to come before them. They were handled through the courts, through the judges. Kings did not allow criminals before them. So they weren't welcomed. In fact, in the book of Esther, when Mordecai realizes that there's a plot against the Jewish people, him and Esther herself, his immediate reaction is to throw on uh, you know, sackcloth and ashes. And it says that he then ran to the, kingdom, to, the, to the palace, but only got as far as the king's gate. The reason for that is that the king did not allow anyone in his presence in a state of mourning represented by the sackcloth and ashes. The king wanted to believe that everything was in perfect harmony in his kingdom. He didn't want to be bothered with the sadness of his people. Now you think about that for a moment, and you think about this verse. Not only were we criminals, but we came to him in sackcloth and ashes, and yet he perfectly welcomed us, didn't he? He justified us and atoned for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We were criminals. We were criminals against him in our sin. That sin kept us and separated us from God for all eternity. And if it wouldn't have been reconciled through the person of Jesus Christ, we would still be in that state. When we're in mourning as Christians, when we're suffering as Christians, we often may feel that God doesn't want to hear from us at those times, but yet the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 says that's exactly when we should run to the throne room of God. To find grace and help in our time of what? Need, exactly. Unlike the human kings, God is concerned about all of us in every aspect, in every condition, and in every spot. When Satan tries to lure you away and say, He's, you're not worthy, that's when you step into the throne room of God, knowing that you're worthy in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Agree with him. Yeah, saying, I'm not worthy to go before God, but through Jesus, I am. When you're low and in difficult times you are experiencing, 
and you're depressed and you're anxiety ridden and you're fearful, that's when you go running into the throne room of God. A barrel down the doors. One Hebrew scholar said the best understanding of that in his mind is running into the throne room of God and jumping on dad's lap. That's what he is inviting us to do. And ultimately in the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, in the most intimate place, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Again, perfect relationship, perfect intimacy, uninhibited by sin or death or any such thing. And lastly, notice with me, there shall be no, more, no night there. No need for a lamp, nor a light, nor sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. In the Greek, it's in the continuous tense. It's forever and ever and ever and ever. Throughout the Psalms, David made it clear that it was often at nighttime that fear, worry, and anxiety came upon his mind and heart. When you lay your head on the pillow and you begin to think about the the concerns of the day or what may happen in the near future, and you grow anxious. Those moments will never occur again in the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. Those moments of anxiety, those moments of fear, those moments of worry, those moments of doubt will never ever occur again because there is no night. It is light all the time, meaning that the full knowledge and understanding of God is ours to have, and therefore we will not be concerned of those things. Remember, our faith is solely based upon our knowledge of God. And as I increase in my knowledge of God, I should increase in my faith in God, not only believing in Him, but believing Him. But when we know him perfectly, there will be no need for faith any longer, right? And I won't be tempted to doubt at those moments. I love what Isaiah wrote when he wrote this in chapter 60, verses 19 and 20. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. And your God, your glory, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall end. Notice that. The days of your mourning shall end. Today, unfortunately, we are constantly reminded of the effects of sin. People in our world die every day, every hour and every minute and every second. To be precise, three people die every second, 180 people die every minute, 11,000 people die every hour. On any given day, 250,000 people will die and enter into eternity. We never lived in a world where we would know anything different but the effects of sin and death. At this point in time, I would hope that we are now all feeling a little homesick. This is what we are looking forward to. But as I said at the beginning, these six various items that we will see, I want to end with joy this morning. As one wrote, he said, one day soon there will be a great restoration of all those things that sin and death have affected." 
And the results of that sin and death will be done away with once and for all. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his famous book, joy is serious business in heaven. As a psalmist wrote in Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. A famous pastor uh, put on his in- a Facebook, what are you looking for most in heaven? I want to read to you some of what he re- got in return. A girl named Liz wrote and said, What I am looking for in heaven, I'm looking forward to seeing my babies that I aborted, getting them into my arms and loving them as I should have here on this earth. She says, Thanks, thank God for his son and his life shed for a sinner like me who can now look forward to that day. Christina wrote, My sister is handicapped. She cannot walk or talk. But we have a special bond, and I pray one day in heaven we will have a long conversation full of happiness and joy and walk together hand in hand and maybe even dance a little. Peter wrote, and he said, What I look forward most in, to most in heaven is to see my wife again, my son who was only 26 when he went to be with the Lord My wife was only 49 when she went to be with the Lord. I miss them both so much. I look forward to being with them in the presence of the Lord. Or Jennifer, when she wrote, I would like to talk to my daughter. She is severely autistic. I want to hear what life looks like from her eyes to understand that and her would be heaven indeed to me. And lastly, Crystal wrote in and said, I'm looking forward to holding my, ba- my sweet baby boy, David. He passed away at eight months old. I can't wait to experience his first words, his first time running, see him grow up in heaven, and most of all, for my son to introduce me to our Savior Jesus. This is what people are looking forward to. What are you looking forward to today? What is that that you look forward to in heaven? Heaven should be a great Uh, great source of hope and joy for each and every one of us here and now. You know, I'm going to close with a story that I heard. This is a true story of someone who died and went to heaven and talked to Peter at the gate. Wink, wink, okay? As this gentleman approached the gates, he saw Peter standing there. And as the man approached, he says, listen, I I don't know how this all works. Uh, How can I get into heaven? And Peter said to him, well, it's on a point system. You need 1,000 points. So please tell me everything that you have ever done, and let's calculate the points that you will need. So the man got a little excited. He thought, well, I, I I should do pretty well. For I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I never cheated on her, not even in my heart. Peter said, hmm, okay, that's three points. The guy said, are you kidding me? Just three points? Well, the man went on then to say, well, I attended church faithfully every Sunday and went to a midweek Bible study and faithfully gave of my tithes and offerings to the Lord. I even gave of my gross and not my net." Peter said, oh, okay. 
Um, now that's another point. Well, how many points do I have so far? Four. Well, let's see. I, I worked in the soup kitchen for years and years and years. I spent weekends feeding homeless people. And Peter says, ah, that's two more. You're now up to six. The man said, forget it. Good night. At this rate, the only way I'll ever get into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter smiled and said, 1,000 points come in and enter into the joy of your Lord. I can't talk enough about the love of the grace of God that paves the way for each and every one of us to enjoy the heaven that he is preparing for us. Do you know Jesus today? Are you sure that if something were to happen, unfortunately, to you, that you would step out of this life and enter into the next, into heaven, into his throne room, into his glory? If you don't, I'd like to pray with you today that you may know for sure and no longer doubt. Amen?